Coming up on Word Matters, ginormous words. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Among the perennial questions posed to people in the dictionary business is this. What is the longest word in the dictionary? There are a number of famous contenders, but is there a clear champion? Ammon, Neil, Peter, and I will lay out all the syllables for you. There's a small set of questions that lexicographers get asked over and over and over again, and one of them is, what is the longest word in the dictionary? Now, we all know there is no the dictionary, so we can talk about what the longest word in Merriam-Webster's dictionaries are. The longest word in our unabridged dictionary is Numano Ultra Microscopic Silico Volcano Coniosis. Whoa. The longest word in the Merriam-Webster.com dictionary is Acrylonitrile Butadiene Styrene. That one's got some hyphens in it, so it's not as Mm. impressive as Numano Ultra Microscopic Silico Volcano Coniosis. I can tell you've been shedding these words, as they say in the jazz (laughs) parlance. You've been practicing. I have. I have been practicing. It's true. None of these words are very useful, really, if we want to be honest about it. Right? They're sort of show horses, but right? They have meanings in the dictionary, right? The new mono microscopic is supposed to be what a, a lung disease associated with inhaling coal or quartz, right? It's, yes. yes. Supposed to be, yes. There has been some speculation in the past that this word was coined by pranksters with the goal of getting a very long word into the dictionary. Oh, if it ends up being used, is just as valid a way of word creation as any other way. That's right. Tell that um, to the diagnosing physician. Right. Sure. <laughs> he doesn't care where the word comes from. She doesn't care. If she's diagnosing somebody with this disease, it doesn't matter what the etymology is. That's right. As far as defining goes, defining one of these very long words, it's generally not very interesting because they usually have a very narrow meaning. They're kind of easy. And they're usually based on some other word that's already part of the construction of the word, right? I think in terms of pneumono, ultra, micro, whatever, in our medical dictionary, it is a pneumoconiosis caused by inhalation of very fine silicate or quartz dust. And so then you're going to chase down whatever a pneumoconiosis is, right? That's right. People love kind of showing off knowing these long words. Yes. And the fact that there's a word out there to describe long words, sesquipedalian. Yeah, there we go. Which literally comes that. from roots meaning words a foot and a half long, sesqu meaning one and a half. So the fact that this example exists actually fits. It is an aptronym, I suppose, and sure. that it, mm-hmm. it fits its description, its own meaning very well. I love when words like sesquipedalian has this kind of nominative determinism. You know, oh, like sure. They, they, they come to embody themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. It's charming. It's a favorite word of mine. In the French, the Petit Robert, I asked our colleague, Edouard Trouillet, who's an editor at the Petit Robert, sort of the equivalent of the collegiate dictionary, a desk dictionary, a very serious academic dictionary with good etymologies. And their longest word is anticonstitutionnellement, anticonstitutionally in French. And that's the longest word in the French standard desk dictionary. It's no pneumano ultra microscopic silico volcano coniosis, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's, it's true that English is a Germanic language that likes these compounding more than the Latin-based languages, even though that word is based on Latin and Greek parts, of course. But the longest word is usually not a common word, you know, not a word that people will recognize. You'd have to then explain more, as we would with the lung disease or anti-disestablishmentarianism. 
Get People like to, to know it for the dictionary trivia, right? It's like the words with all five vowels in them, or the facetiously is the one with the vowels in order, right? Mm-hmm. Uncopyrightable is the longest word that does not repeat a letter. It's got all distinct letters in it. There's not one repeated letter in the word uncopyrightable. The dictionary has a lot of this fun trivia, and I can't say that we as lexicographers really stop to note it when it happens. It's the kind of thing that is kept on a record somewhere in the office, and then we have to go look it up if somebody asks. But it's just a lot of fun to kind of keep track of these things. Yeah. You guys just brought up an interesting question, and, and they don't let me near the defining words because I would do something <laughs> bad to them. The three of you define words as your kind of bread and butter here. What is your favorite kind of word to define? This favorite because they're easy and favorite because they're challenging. Words that are solid objects are usually the kind of word that is easiest to define, I think. Concrete, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Concrete concrete nouns nouns. are pretty straightforward. Those are boring. And they tend to be boring. Abstract concepts are a little harder, obviously. Mm. That's a more A lot harder. I mean, sometimes they can be really difficult. I have a love-hate relationship with the words that are difficult to define. I want to be in there, but then I can get sick of them. Right. So once you're like three weeks into run, you start to like get the definer's headache coming on. Peter Gilliver, the OED, told me once that he spent nine months on run. Yeah. Mm. I have never spent that long on a word because we do not write historical dictionaries, which means that we do not, as a definer, I do not have to find the earliest example of every particular meaning of a word. So it can go much more quickly. But I have spent weeks and weeks on a very particular word, the word disposition, which I did a full revision of disposition for the unabridged dictionary. That took a long time. It had military uses. It Mm. had legal uses. It had one referring to organ stops on a musical organ. Oh, yes. It was just a very, very complex word. A word like put or go, those are fun. The hard words really are often like these really short function words. Yeah. Like articles and verbs like get and set. And Emily has done a bunch of them. And that really is a kind of a different job almost. Well, I think Neil did some too. I worked Mm -hmm. on them mostly when I was working on the learner's dictionary, which was a dictionary that we made for non-native English speakers. We did full treatments of all of these very, very common words. But the more common a word is, I think the more challenging it is to define in general. Right. And so in a broad sense, the longer a word is, the less likely it is to have this highly polysemous Oh, yeah. Multisense. Right. A word like pneumono, ultramicroscopic, silicosis is not going to vary in meaning much. This is the paradox. A very technical noun, which might be a hard word, that is to say either uh, an obscure, learned word that is only used by specialists or hard to spell, often because it's got classical roots. Those are the easiest words to write definitions for. Right. Like agathocacological, which means composed of both good and evil. Yeah, That's not getting a lot of semantic broadening as the ages have yeah, gone. No. It's remained remarkably <laughs> precise for about three or 400 years. But it reminds me of, uh, for example, another word that many people think of as a long word or the longest word is anti-disestablishmentarianism, which is a pretty easy word to define. It's just a word that we find is not really used to carry meaning. It's usually used to cite itself as right. a long word. And anti-disestablishmentarianism is often cited as the longest word in the dictionary. In fact, we don't enter it because it's so infrequently used. But what about supercalifragilistic aspialidocious? That's taken on a kind of broader meaning. It is used as an example of a long word, but it also Mm -hmm. has some other lexical content, doesn't it? Sure. It can have a semantic application, certainly. It can mean simply like super. It can mean something like as a fun way of saying the word super or something. Absolutely. The fact is, it's not in a Merriam-Webster dictionary yet. And the reason is because it didn't have a specific discernible, consistent meaning. 
However, that rule was really established for saving space in a print dictionary, uh-huh. as were so many other rules that have to do with entering a, a word in the dictionary. And because we now have essentially infinite space with an online dictionary, and because this is a real word and it's used and known by many people, there's lots to say and know about it. Where did it come from? How is it typically spelled? All the rest of it, I think it does deserve entry and probably will be entered in our dictionaries at some point. By our modern criteria, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious qualifies for entry, and it's really just low enough down on the list that maybe just nobody's gotten around to it quite. But (laughs) anti-disestablishmentarianism, that's not ready to go in, right? Nobody uses it. Establishmentarianism refers to the support of the head of state, that is to say the Queen of England, as also the head of the Church of England. And disestablishmentarianism is an advocacy for the separation of the church and state. And then anti-disestablishmentarianism, of course, is opposition to the opposition. There are some words that are just sort of fun to say, and, and they're word lovers' words. I mean, schadenfreude strikes me as one of those. People love to say it. It's also a great spelling bee word. But that has a lot of application every day. Huge amount of natural use. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Absolutely. But it also shows that you're a kind of a word lover because that you've acquired this one. Right. And Calipigian, having buttocks that are nicely shaped. You know, people really don't use that in everyday life. They like to know that the word exists. Right. As Calipigian, as Stetopigian. And we give a variant of Calipigian, which is Calipigus. Yes. How do you spell that? C-A-L-L-I-P-Y-G-O-U-S. Huh. There's also a calipig, which is the noun. That's Um, the noun, yeah. yeah. A calipig is a person with shapely buttocks. We'll be back with more on long words and a few of our defining secrets. You're listening to Word Matters from Merriam-Webster and New England Public Media. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. What's the worst word you've ever had to define? What's the word that you look back on and gives you nightmares? I did come to hate the word disposition when I was mostly done with that project. There are so many examples because it's a very common word. And it's a word, especially when it was used in its legal uses and military uses, so many usage examples to sort through and then to filter them out and put them at the right senses and then to figure out what was the best way to communicate those meanings and had this meaning shifted significantly or is this citation just an outlier I did not like that word by the time I was done with it. That restores my faith in the order of the universe. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Peter touched upon the decisions a definer has to make. And there's these terms that we use for 
when we talk shop about how we define and whether or not to make something of specific sense or not. We call it lumping and splitting, mm. right? And lumping is when we kind of decide that a broad definition is going to be enough to do the work of defining and covering all aspects of a word, or do we then want to divide into further subsenses and further subsenses so that we cover each individually and with enough distinction, which essentially is what defining is. If you think about what the job is, you're trying to make things fine. You are trying to separate one meaning from another. But of course, when it comes to the real world and how we use language, you can keep doing that and doing that and doing that. It's like Zeno's paradox. You start in C and then you're never going to get to D if you keep doing this. So you have to kind of decide when to stop going down rabbit holes and when you have covered all aspects of meaning enough with what you have put on the page. So I would say I'm maybe more toward the lumper end of the philosophical spectrum. I am a reformed splitter. My inclination is to split, and I temper that by trying to lump because I think it often serves the reader more to have things lumped. But I like constantly pushing back against my impulse to split. I also find myself using illustrations to do more of the splitting. Yes. I feel like that covers so much of the work that you might be trying to get with a very, very fine definition. If if you give a kind of a lumpy definition and then show a couple of illustrations that are distinct enough from each other, that then sends the message that there are these specific applications that you are going to find and then aren't really worth putting into defining language, but are worth recording for the sake of language reference. You want to write the definition broadly enough that then the the illustrations do the splitting for you. Yeah. You know, like it covers it. But like when I was working on meta, it ended up with two senses. At one point, I had about five and then Mm, just found a way to squeeze them together. As a way of kind of bringing this around to the the topic that we started with, which is what is the longest word in the dictionary, Mm. I think an interesting correlate to that is what is the longest entry in the dictionary. Oh, Usually in most dictionaries, it is these short words that either go or set or run or put. Which one is it so far? Do you know? I believe with us it's set. Set, yeah. Yeah. Typically it's set, if not put. In most dictionaries, it's whichever one of set, put, and run has been defined most recently because they're all constantly growing. And it's hard to count, but I think set is something like nine columns of text in our unabridged dictionary. Now, that's also interesting in that set is closer to the end of the alphabet, which means that Mm. the definers are all suffering from alphabet fatigue by that (laughs) point in the dictionary making. So set could probably be longer. Especially in S, where S is like the hardest letter. It is the hardest letter. Yeah, absolutely. S is a beast. If you have a question or comment, email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.